we, we said, hey, we've got five building blocks that we're trying to make our way and navigate our way through. First one, that first building block was understanding change's destination helps us in this process of change because we need to know what are we changing into? What's the goal? Why are we in this process of change? The second building block that we want to talk about is change's power. Changes power. Where do we get the actual resources and the power to change to become what Christ has called us to? And friends, the power for change comes about through your union with Christ. Or maybe a metaphorical way to talk about it would be it comes from the fact that you're married. It comes from the fact that you are married to Christ. That's the second building block. If we keep our analogy going of the airplane or the traveling metaphor, uh, Marriage with Christ is like the gas that fills up your car or the gas that fills the airplane. So imagine that I have a final destination. I know I'm coming to St. Louis. I get in the plane, check my bags, and I sit there, and the pilot turns on the airplane, but there's no gas, right? There's no gas, and so we're just sitting there. Again, I think a lot of us are probably like that. If you've made it through the first hurdle and you know where you're going and you make it on the plane, a lot of us are just sitting. You're just sitting in the car. You're stuck in your driveway, but you don't have any gas, because you've not connected yourself to the realities of Christ in you, in your marriage to Christ. I love how Rankin Wilborn puts it. He puts it like this. He says that you are in Christ gives you assurance. You are in Christ gives you assurance, but Christ is in you or Christ in you. That's what gives you power. Now turn over with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 11. Romans chapter 8, verse 11 is one of my all-time favorite verses to use in counseling because it is, it's absolutely mind-boggling when we think about it. Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Paul's talking about what does this new life in Christ look like, and he starts it off in Romans 8, therefore, if uh, you are in Christ, there is no condemnation. Hallelujah. That's the best news to wake up to. But he tells us, I mean, the news just keeps getting better and better. Listen to what he says in verse 11, Okay. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, right? (laughs) Again, because we can be so familiar with scripture, we can have a dreadful tendency to despise or ignore it. So we read through a verse like that, and we, I think, oftentimes miss what it's saying, okay? Here's what it's saying. The same spirit that brought a dead guy back to life without any magic tricks or hocus pocus, he actually brought a dead person back to life. That same spirit, you know where he is? He works in and through you. He lives in you. People tell me, well, I just don't, you know, change is so hard or I can't do it. I say, listen, you don't understand then who you're married to. You don't understand what Paul tells the Colossian church in Colossians 1.27, that it is Christ in you, the hope of glory, that's this new mystery, right? That, the, that, that being married to Christ and being united with Christ is the gas in the tank that powers and fuels your obedience, right? It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 1 where he says, listen, I'm preaching the gospel to you so that I can get what? The obedience of your what? Of your faith, Right? That's the power of the gospel. And friends, so many of us are sitting in our driveways with gas tanks that are on empty because we have forgotten that we are married to Christ. Do you get that? Does that energize you? Does that animate your obedience to Christ? 
Do you realize that the same spirit that brought a dead guy back to life is at work in you? Amen. Paul says it like this in Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will maybe be faithful to complete it. <laughs> right? Thank God it doesn't say that. He will be faithful to complete it in you. But oftentimes we forget this, okay? So let's keep going. Brian Chapel writes this. He says, The grace then that identifies me as God's child is not based on my actions. He characterizes me based on my what? On my relationship with him, not on the basis of what I have done. My union with Christ, or what theologians call the indicatives, the indicatives of who you are, precedes and, underline that word, motivates your obedience. It is the gas that motivates, energizes, animates, empowers, gets you going. That's what Christ in you does. The problem, though, like we've said, though, is that a lot of us forget that we're married. And that dynamic is what I like to call the gospel gap. The gospel gap. Now, you don't have to turn over there, but in 2 Peter chapter 1, 3-9, through 9, Peter actually gives us a picture of how this works out in real time. Peter says, "...his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life in godliness." through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. And he goes on to list off a lot of different fruits of what it looks like to be in Christ. In verse 5, he says, For this reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. Right? He says, listen, if you, if you get this, this is how you're going to be growing. Verse 8, 2 Peter 1.8. If these qualities are yours and if they are increasing, Peter says, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise God. We don't want to be unfruitful or ineffective. But look at what verse 9 says. Peter says, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was what? Having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Right? What is the cause that's listed then for this lack of spiritual growth? Why aren't people changing, Peter might say. That's maybe shorthand for what Peter is saying. He's saying, listen, the reason why you're not changing is you've got some eyesight problems and you've got some memory issues. You've got a little bit of myopia, that's what I've got, and you've got a little bit of spiritual amnesia, right? If I take off my glasses, you guys are just one big blob, and that might be a good thing on some days. But for me, I need to have glasses. I want to see all of you. I want to see all the way to the back row. And thank God I've got glasses that help me not be nearsighted. And Peter here is saying, listen, you're so nearsighted. All you can see is right in front of you. You, you. you can't see the bigger picture of what's going on. And not only can you not see, but you've got some memory problems. You, you've forgotten about who God is and what he's done in your past life, how he has saved you and how he has changed you. Paul Tripp and Tim Lane write this. They say many believers then live a gospel gap in their lives. They have some sense of the past forgiveness of their sins and the future promise of heaven, but without understanding or experiencing the power of the gospel in the present. The monotony of life lulls us to sleep, and we miss the miraculous presence of Christ. 
And friends, I find that this is so often the case for many of us in the church, especially I think that the demographic that tends to have to battle this the most are people who have grown up in Christian homes, who've grown up in the church, where church is more cultural than it is a part of what it means to be a believer. You just come to church, you just hear the same thing over and over again, and you actually get anesthetized to the beauty and the power of the gospel. Turn over with me to Romans chapter 1. We'll see how maybe Paul kind of states it to the church at Rome. In Romans 1, Romans 1.16 is probably the more well-known verse of the book of Romans, but I actually think Romans 1.15 is equally as powerful. Again, he's preaching to the church at Rome. Paul has never been to the church at Rome, and so here's his one shot. Here's what he wants to tell them. Verse 15, I am eager to preach the what? I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Why does Paul need to preach the gospel to people who are already saved, right? Have you ever thought that? Why does, why does Paul need to preach the gospel to a church, right? Do they really need that? Do they really need to know the good news? Well, the answer obviously is yes. You and I can never hear the gospel message too many times. You and I can never hear the fact that apart from Christ, the wages of our sin was what? death, but that by the grace of God, we get eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul here is telling the church at Rome, out of all the different things that I need to tell you about, here's the most important thing. I need to preach the gospel to you. And what Peter is saying here in 2 Peter is he's saying, listen, part of the problems with Christians who are ineffective and unfruitful is that you have forgotten the gospel. You have a gospel gap in your lives. And as we think about body life here at the church at Cape Bible Church, maybe one of the things that we notice or we observe or we've even experienced in our own life is that we notice that we're not being as fruitful and as effective as we could be. We've got a lot of people coming in every single Sunday, and they're taking in loads of great content, loads of great preaching, loads of great information, but we don't really seem to be as fruitful and as effective as we would want to be. And we think, well, do we need to change this program or add this in or become more attractional or do this, that, or the other? And the answer might be, it actually might start right here. You and I, and this happens to me every day, you and I might be struggling with some eyesight issues. You and I might be struggling with some memory issues. It's the exact same problem that Paul or that the Apostle John in the letters to the seven churches of Asia identifies with the church at Ephesus. He says, hey, you guys have got a problem. You know what? You have forgotten your first love. You, you need to actually go remember, he tells them. You actually need to go back and remember who God is and what he has done for you. Friends, this is a significant building block that has to be in place. If you don't remember and understand and live out the realities of Christ in you, in so many ways you are going to be unfruitful and ineffective for the Lord. That's the second building block that gospel gap that shows up in your life. And when we get to the end, and as we do a little bit of self-reflective question, uh, questioning, that's a really helpful question to ask all of ourselves. Where does that gospel gap show up in my life? How does that gospel gap show up in my life? Uh, let's talk about this third building block. The third building block is this, is changes method. Changes method. How does God actually accomplish this process of change? And here's the answer. It's through biblical community. And if we keep going with our travel analogy, right, uh, biblical community is like having road trip buddies, right? Uh, I I enjoy road trips uh, in moderation. I don't want to be on a lot of road trips. Uh, I like to actually be on road trips by myself, typically, like to, to drive or to fly. But there is something markedly better 
about having other people with me, right? You get to jam out to music, you get to eat food together, you get to have experiences and make memories together, right? That, that there's something about family vacations and taking road trips together in the vehicle or in the airplane that adds to it, right? That makes it even better. And friends, that's actually the methodology. That's the greenhouse of where the change process takes place. It happens within the context and within the confines of biblical community. We know this, again, because we can go back to the storyline of Scripture, right? What were you designed for? You were designed to live in community. Now, John Donne, the great English sonnet writer, he had a lot of different uh, poems or sonnets that he would write, and he called them uh, different meditations. And his most famous meditation was called Meditation 17. And in Meditation 17, Meditation 17 opens up with a line. It says, never ask for whom the bell tolls because the bell tolls for thee. And Hemingway stole the line a little bit later, but it was actually John Donne's. And uh, you know, what does that line mean? What does it mean, never ask for whom the bell tolls because it tolls for thee? Well, you know, John Donne grew up on the English countryside with all of these little country churches. And in country, uh, English countryside churches, every time someone died or every time somebody was born, uh, the, the pastor of the church would go and he would ring the bell. He would ring the bell to announce that somebody had been born or that somebody had died. And what Don is, what Don is, is getting at, he's saying, never ask for whom the bell tolls, right? It's not just tolling for somebody over there who just died or had a baby. It's actually tolling for you, right? Because you're a part of this community. So when somebody over here in our community dies, guess what? We're ringing the bell for them, but we're also ringing the bell for who? For you. And later on in Meditation 17, his most famous line where he says, no man is a what? No man is an island unto himself. He says, nobody's just an island completely by themselves. We're all joined together, right? Don't ask for whom the bell tolls because the bell tolls for you. You were meant and you were designed to live within community. The problem with that, though, friends, as we know, is that we live in a culture that is so highly individualistic. We live in a culture that is very much about what you want to do, about your dreams, about your desires, and about your expectations. Uh, Todd Bolsinger, in a really helpful book called It Takes a Church to Raise a Christian, he says this. He says, more than any before us, an American today believes, quote, I must write the script of my own life. The thought that such a script must be subordinated to the grand narrative of the Bible is a foreign one. Still more alarming is the idea that this surrender of our personal story to God's story must be mediated by a community of fallen people we frankly don't want getting in our way and meddling with our own hopes and dreams, right? You know, what Bolsinger is saying there is so spot on. He's saying, listen, we want to do our own thing. We don't want the other people that are at your round tables this morning getting involved and poking their noses in your business. You want to do what you want to do, right? That is ingrained and built into us as a culture. And the problem, friends, with that is that we bring that then from the secular culture and from our families of origin, from our upbringings and our historical backgrounds, and we bring it into the church, Right? And we say, well, church is just about me. It's about my experience. What can I get out of church? And do I like the preaching? Do I like the music? Do I like the children's ministry? It's not about, hey, how can I contribute and build up this community? How can I actually speak truth and love and, and help this community of people become more like Christ? We actually don't believe what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12 where he says, listen, if one member in your body suffers, guess what? Every single person in this room, what? suffers. If one person over here at this table rejoices, guess what? Paul says, every single member in here rejoices. We don't get that together as a church. 
right? What's happening over there really doesn't affect us over there. That's just too hard. It takes a lot of time. That's a bit burdensome. That is absolutely, friends, antithetical to the Bible's understanding of relationships in community. But that's the exact greenhouse, the exact context that God has said, listen, where does change happen? It happens within the context of community. What, what prevents us from having Christian community? And, and I want to list up just a bunch of different reasons, and I'd love to get feedback from all of you, too, of what prevents Christian community, and you know, even if we can hone in on it with a degree of specificity here at Cape Bible Chapel, that's even more helpful. But, but what prevents us? Why is community so difficult? I think for a lot of us, we realize that it's messy and it's complicated, right? Tim Keller has a great line. He says, if you want to help burden people, if you want to help messy people, you've got to get close to burden people and messy people, right? The shepherd starts to kind of smell like the what? Like the sheep, right? And sometimes we see things in our lives and we're like, oh, that sounds really complicated. And we do what? We move away from things that are complicated. I mean, do any of you really want to move into something that's hard, complicated, messy, and is going to take a lot of your time? I mean, any, let's just get a show of hands. Anybody want to do that, right? Nobody does, right? But friends, that's exactly what we're called to do. Relationships are messy. Here, here's the news. You're messy. You're complicated. You've got a lot of burdens. Did you know that? I, I'm burdensome. I'm messy, and I'm complicated. But because we don't want to get our hands dirty, because we think, oh, that takes a lot of time, you know, and I just don't have the right, you know, let's call Pastor Eric, call Pastor Ben, you know, bump that up to somebody else. We don't want to do that work. But God actually calls us to do that work. It takes too much time. It's easier to rely on relational substitutes, right? It's a whole lot easier to send a heart emoji or to send thoughts and prayers to somebody on Facebook, right? Because we think, oh, social media or technology or something can mediate out the actual demands and intentions of what it means to live in community. And so instead of actually moving towards someone and saying, hey, how can I pray for you? We, we just push a button on our phone, right? Instead of actually moving towards someone and saying, hey, why don't you come over? We, we, you know, we, we, we make up an excuse or we, we pray that somebody else will come along and do that role. A lot of times we blame things on geographic distance. Oh, well, you know, they're, they're like 15 minutes away from me, and, it, you know, it'd probably just be really inconvenient for them to come over. Or, you know what, they, they're, they're 20 minutes away from me, or they're in a different neighborhood, and, you know, I just, you know, that's, that, that's just going to take too much time. Uh, a fear of being rejected, fear of being known, right? A lot of us, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, that part of the reason why you don't want to be involved in community is you actually don't want to be known. You actually don't want other people to know what's going on in your life for a variety of reasons. You might be ashamed of something in your past. You might be embarrassed about something in your past. You might be ashamed that you don't have a lot of Bible knowledge or you don't know certain things and you don't want to be exposed in that way. Some of you maybe have tried to push into community here at Cape and actually been rejected. And that's been hard for you. And you said, you know what? I'll have people all the time at conferences like this and they'll say, listen, I've tried it. And, and nobody, you know, people don't reciprocate. You know, I'll try to make friends, or I'll try to break into a small group, and it's such a click here. There's so many factions. I, I, I can't move into that. And so what they'll do is they'll give up. Well, that's, that's not an option in the church. Right? We don't get an option to say, well, you get three tries, and if it doesn't work on the third, then you get to be a loner for the rest of your Christian existence. That's not, that's not in the Bible. That's not an option. Remember, going back to our final destination, there's not going to be a row of houses for introverted people or who are, you know, a certain enneagram score, right? This is for everybody. We're all engaged in this, right? 
And we, and we could go on. A fear of being known, a fear of being known and not loved. Right? I love what Sartre, Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, said. You want to know what hell is? He says hell is being looked at. Hell is being known, right? right? It's, it's having all of your mess, all of whatever you are, everything from your just being out there, being out in the open. You know, fear of needing to be vulnerable. Some of you in here, maybe especially guys, you don't want to be vulnerable. You don't actually want to expose need. You actually don't want to be honest enough to say, you know what, I don't know everything. I can't do everything. I actually am a weak person, right? Pridefulness. I think that's where pridefulness comes in. Unrealistic expectations. I, I run into this all the time, especially with families and, 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 and people coming out of, say, college environments where they had these wonderful opportunities to build relationships and they come into the church where some of those opportunities then aren't afforded to them. Their expectations are so high for what community and relationships look like that then the church doesn't meet up to that and so they, they tap out. They say, well, you know, the church isn't like college. And you're right, yeah, you're not living with everybody in this room 24 hours a day, seven days a week, going to the same class and eating the same meals in the same cafeteria, right? You, you see each other maybe once or twice a week, and then you go back to your own home. So, so you realize that a lot of times we can have unrealistic expectations, which then prevent us from actually entering into community. We can have preconceived ideas about other people. We can blame it on our personality. And again, some of you might be trying to excuse yourselves or give yourselves a pass right now by saying, well, I'm an introvert. Well, I'm an introvert too, but I don't get a special pass to not be involved in biblical community, right? The shallowness of our faith in life, I find this oftentimes too. Again, it gets back to not being known, but some of us, the reason why you don't want to be involved in community is there's actually not a lot going on below the surface, you actually are unfruitful. You're actually not very effective in your faith. And so being in a small group or being involved in biblical friendships and relationships would actually expose that, that there's not a lot going on beneath the waterline. Uh, indifference or lack of love. Some of you just don't care. And, and, and friends, I listed that at the end because that's a significant problem. All of the other ones I think we can work through, but if you're just frankly indifferent and just don't care about relationships, that's something I think you need to repent from. That's not okay. Right? You, you, you realize, again, if you look at the storyline of the Bible, this is not just a church growth strategy. This isn't just a plan that your elders cooked up to, to have really good church life. Like, hey, we should have small groups and have people involved in community. That's not something that they made up. That's something that God designed. Right? God designed us to be involved and engaged in community. I'd love to just open it up to you. What would you guys add to this list that maybe is a little bit more contextually true for you guys here at Cape Bible Chapel? What kinds of things do you think prevent the development of good Christian community in relationships and friendships? Don't, don't be shy. What are some things that you might add to this list or maybe riff off of from this list? Busyness. We definitely should put busyness up there. Definitely should put busyness up there. Okay. Distraction. What kind of things would you say distract us here? Okay. Just the culture here, there's just a lot of things that you need to do or that feel like they're must or needs. Yeah. Yeah. Ah. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, it's in, and again, that's where what shapes, what should shape that vision? Well, that's Revelation 7. 
you know? In Revelation 7, we see people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. It's not like over here in block one, we have young marrieds. Over in block two, we have, you know, old timers. You know, block three, we have young families. And then we have singles, like, kind of off in the corner, you know? Like, it's everybody, you know? Everybody's here worshiping God together. That's, that's a great one. What else keeps us from it? Okay. Yeah, failures. So, so, yeah, so that's maybe uh, something we should put at the very beginning is some of us don't even think this really is that much of a priority. And friends, I'm telling you, it, it, it's, it has to be a priority for us. This is the context by which God changes people. He doesn't just change us in a vacuum. What are some other things? Yeah, preconceived, you know, like, hey, you know, they don't have the same interest as me or... They don't share the same, you know, background as me, or they don't have kids, and I do, so they probably aren't going to understand my struggles. You know, I'll get that a lot. Uh, it's as if that we forget that Jesus was never married and never had kids, and yet we'd probably all take marriage and parenting advice from him, right? You know, the idea that you have to have a certain kind of experience in order for you to be able to be involved in community. You know, I've never been a drug addict, never been an alcoholic, but God still calls me to bear burdens with people who are alcoholics and drug addicts, Right? That, that, that experience becomes the primary way that we relate to people oftentimes does become a burden then when we come to those relationships with those preconceived ideas. That's, that's absolutely true. What other things might keep us from getting involved or building those types of friendships or relationships? We probably could keep adding this. Right back there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What did those gatherings look like? And again, last night we talked about just what some of the one another's look like. And, you know, the most commonly and most repeated one another in Scripture is just greet one another, right? We are told more about how to greet one another in Scripture than how to structure your devotional times, right? Hey, just show up, stick your hand out, and say, hi, it's good to see you. You know, give me a hug side hug or whatever it is, but let's actually move towards people. Let's actually, you know, maybe move where we sit on a Sunday morning. Wow, that might be radical, right? Or maybe we should actually invite the person next to us that we've sat with for 10 years over to our house for dinner or for a meal. Or, you know, extra credit points might be, hey, how can I pray for you? You know, what's hard for you? What, what burdens you? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Failure to prioritize, and and what Eric said about busyness is so true. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. And the first one is typically a question of ability. Well, can you do all of these things, do soccer practice, do travel teams, and, and be involved in PTA and be involved in all these things? Yes, should you is the wisdom question. And ability versus wisdom is always a tension that as Christians we're trying to grow in. Can you do all these things? Maybe. Will you be completely exhausted and wasted on Saturday at the end of the week? Yeah. So maybe the question is not can you, but should you? Should you be doing all those things? So all excellent things. Now here's the thing. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold you guys accountable to this, but you've identified all these things that prevent it. Now you actually have to do what? You, you need to go and address it. You actually need to leave and move out of here on a Saturday uh, afternoon or morning and say, okay, we actually want to move past some of these things and build the types of communities that God's called us to. If, if we're still not convinced, I want to show you one passage of Scripture that I think help, can help move us in that direction. How many of you guys have ever heard sermons preached on Romans 12, 1 through 2? Raise your hand. Okay, if you've been a Christian for very long, you've probably heard Romans 12 preached. Great passage. 
I've almost always heard Romans 12 preach like this. Hey, in light of everything that God's done for you, God wants you to be a living sacrifice. He wants you to give yourself to him, self-sacrifice yourself, pull yourself up on the altar, your living sacrifice, go and present yourself to him, right? That's kind of the general, you know, nutshell cliff notes. When you actually read the verse, though, I actually think that there's something different that Paul's after. And what I've tried to do is I've tried to highlight all of the different pronouns or what we might call second-person plural. In the Greek, there's uh, second-person plural and second-person singular. In English, can't equate that. If you're in the South, there is an equivalent, and it's what? It's y'all, right? You know, otherwise it's you, you know, it might be you or yours. In the South, they've kind of got it. You know, it's the y'all. Maybe some of you are from the South. Well, in the Greek, we can differentiate between a second person singular and a second person plural. Here's the, the news flash. All of the pronouns in Romans 12, 1 through 2, guess what they are? Do you think they're singular or do you think they're plural? They're plural. So let me read it like a Southerner would read it. He says, I appeal to y'all, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present y'all's bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, notice that he doesn't say what? Sacrifices. Like, hey, everybody's on their individual train, kind of doing their own thing, and we want you to do your sacrifice. It's all of y'all present your bodies as what? One sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is all y'all's spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of y'all's minds, that by testing y'all may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Does that change maybe how you begin to see Romans 12? Again, it shouldn't surprise us because the letter was written to a what? A church. (laughs) It would have been read out to people out loud. A lot of people couldn't read. Right? It's, not like, it's not like Paul's just coming up to Mike Edmonds and saying, hey, I've got this letter for you, and that he's sitting down, he's saying, hey, I want you to be a living sacrifice for God. Right? Somebody's reading this letter out loud. He's saying, listen, I want all of you together, church and room, I want all of you at Cape Bible Chapel, I want you guys to put your heads together, get together, and present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I want together you guys to be living life in such a way that it is a pleasing sacrifice to me. That's, that's what's good. That's what's holy. That's what's acceptable. That's what I am after. I'm not just after a bunch of individuals living out a purpose-driven life by themselves or your best life now. I want all of you guys together doing this, right? And so because of our individualistic culture, we read this through a narrative and a framework that is so individualistic. It's about like, okay, am I doing a good job of being a living sacrifice? I think that you can get there, but I don't think that that's probably the primary aim that Paul's after. He's saying, listen, I want all of you guys to do this together. We don't have time to it, but in another passage in Philippians 2, 12 through 13, it's the same thing. Paul's telling the church at Philippi that had a lot of problems with uh, unity. Remember that it's so bad at Philippi that he actually calls out by name two women in the church. I mean, it's really bad. He's like, hey, Iodia and Syntyche, things are not good. Work it out. Get together and build unity. I mean, that's how bad things are. So when he gets here to Philippians 2, 12 through 13, why do you think, we, why do you think he would suddenly switch to just a highly individualistic line of, of reasoning? He says, it's God who works in you. It's God who works in all of what? In all of y'all's lives, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So work out your what? Salvation with fear and trembling. There's definitely an individualistic way that you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but I wonder how it would change 
all of you here at Cape Bible Chapel if you actually started working out your salvation with fear and trembling together? If you actually took that seriously? If you actually took seriously the commands to admonish one another, to counsel one another, to greet one another, to encourage one another, to instruct one another, to greet one another, to to pray for one another, what would body life here look like? I, I think I have an idea that you would start to become very fruitful and very effective for the Lord, right? Keep on going. What's the fourth building block? Fourth building block, where does this happen? Where does this change process take place? And again, we're going to keep going with my car analogy. Let's say now you're at the spot where you were in your driveway, and you're like, okay, we've got gas in the car. We've got some road trip buddies. We know that we're headed to, to, to St. Louis. And we, we, we turn the key to the ignition, and it doesn't turn over. It's just, it's like a dead battery. And we all hop out of the car, and we say, man, the car, though, it looks great. The exterior looks so nice. I mean, it's brand new. We've got new wheels. Side note, I don't know anything about cars, so if I'm messing anything up about cars, forgive me. Anyways, you realize that at the end of the day that part of the reason might be it might be engine problems. And so you lift up the hood, and, like, the engine's a total mess. The outside of your car might look great, but if the engine is bad, guess what? You're not going on a road trip, right? And for a lot of us, a lot of us in the Christian life, I think the outsides of our life look kind of okay, but the insides, what really matters, our hearts, a lot of things in our heart is not right. So when we talk about this dynamic of what the heart is, this is what Scripture is talking about makes you you. It's the core of who you are. Mark, uh, Proverbs 4.23 puts it this way. It says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the issues of life. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow all of the issues of life. Lasting change, friends, always has to travel through the highway of a person's heart. You can do as many things on the outside. You can do as many things externally as you want. But unless, unless what's inside is changed, nothing outside is ever going to change. Let me give you a little bit of an example here, and I, I, I do this all the time. If I take this water bottle and I squeeze it, right, why does, why does water come out of this? Okay, see, you guys, are, you guys are smart, sensible people. Because water was in it. I'd say 99% of the time when I do this, people say, oh, because you what? Because you squeezed it. And because you squeezed it is not why water came out of the bottle. What came out of the bottle. That's the operating cause, but the reason why that water came out of the bottle is why? Because that's what was inside, right? What's inside comes outside, and that is a principle that carries itself throughout Scripture, that the primacy of where this process takes place, this process of change, it happens in our hearts. Oh, oh, if you have your Bibles, turn over with me to Mark chapter 7. Jesus is having a conversation with the Pharisees. You know, they're religious scholars. They've got everything down to a T. And they're having this conversation with Jesus in Mark 7 about what makes people clean and what makes people unclean. And in a really fascinating way, in Mark 7, verse 20, listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisees. He says, he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the what? Out of the heart of man 
come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from where? From outside of you? Your family of origin? Your circumstances? Your situation? Your annoying boss? The crazy neighbor? No. They all come from where? They come from within you. And they defile a person. Right? So when we think about the process of change, right? And we think about what needs to change. Friends, we would do well to attend to our hearts because that's where the process of change starts. Now, one of the most descriptive ways then that the Bible will talk about what our heart can do and what it does is through the language of idolatry. Uh, the scriptures will talk very frequently and very often about the language of how we can take good things and make them into ultimate things because they rule our hearts, because they begin to master us. Tim Keller writes this. He says, sin isn't only doing bad things. It is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry, right? Idolatry is fundamentally making good things into bad things or making good things into ultimate things. Uh, Paul Tripp puts it like this. Good things become bad things when they become ruling things. And oftentimes in the Christian life, it's not so much that you're out there again doing a lot of externalized bad actions, which is typically how people in the church conceptualize of sin. The language of idolatry, I think, helps orient us and orient our gaze a little bit closer to what this process looks internally. That something starts off very good, a good desire, a good want, but that it begins to rule us. We begin to want it too much, and then when we don't get it, what happens? It masters us, and, and we, we lash out. We sin when we don't get it. Think about, think about a wife who really wants her husband's attention and affirmation. And when her husband comes home from work every day, he's exhausted, he's tired, he's moody. She wants him to ask her questions about how her day went. She wants help with the kids. She wants a little bit of relief. She wants some praise of, hey, you did a good job, and thanks for holding the fort down while I was gone. And instead, the husband comes in and says, hey, what's for dinner? And goes and he turns on the TV to watch the football game or the baseball game, and the wife's left in the kitchen wanting attention and affirmation. She just, she just wants to be known, right? That's not, is that a bad desire? It's a great desire. It's a good thing. But that good thing can become a bad thing when it begins to rule our heart. When that desire for affirmation and attention and to be, to be noticed and to be affirmed by him begins to rule her to the point where then she can't see anything else. To where then when he doesn't give her what she wants, she lashes out. She shuts down, she blows up, she goes frosty, she goes cold, she gets sarcastic, she becomes cynical, she shuts him out, she badmouths him to her mom, right? Sin becomes, becomes actualized then when good desires become bad desires because they begin to rule our heart, right? A guy at work really wants a promotion. He's putting in good work every single day wants to be noticed, wants to be affirmed, would like to be able to move up. There's a little bit of financial stress in the home. It would be really great if he could get a bonus. It would be really great if he could get just a little bit more margin on that paycheck, right? Every single day, he clocks in, clocks out, does his work faithfully, goes the extra mile, and when it comes time for, for, for recognition, for promotion, right, it just doesn't go his way. It happens to somebody else, right? 
right? It's in that moment where it's a good thing to want to wanna do your work well, but that good thing quickly becomes a bad thing when that is the only reason why he's done it, right? When, when he's forgotten what Paul says in Ephesians 6 where he says, listen, don't do things for eye service as men pleasers, but do the will of God from what? From the heart, right? What started off as a good desire to want to work hard becomes a bad thing when the desire to do good work becomes an end for what? for recognition and affirmation and, and, and a promotion at work. Dostoevsky famously said, he says, the line that divides good and evil runs through every human heart. Right? The, the ability for something to go from get good to bad, right? that line is happening in every single human heart. Right? The, the, that you want your, your kids' obedience, and that's not a bad thing, but when your kids don't obey you on a really hard day and you, your patience is wearing thin, that those responses that come out can be very what? can be pretty ugly, and we don't want to really talk about them, right? What starts off as a good thing becomes a bad thing when it becomes a ruling thing. And Scripture is so replete talking about that. Scripture will use a lot of words to help us identify that. If you're, if you're beginning to ask yourself a question of how do, I, how do I begin to access this world of what the Bible is talking about, of what happens in the heart, here are three easy ways that you can get there. The Bible is always talking about the Christian life maybe really even life in general from these pre- three perspectives. What do you love? What do you trust? And what do you obey? What do you put your trust in? What do you love? What do you obey? And if you can begin to ask yourself those three questions in a variety of different ways, slowly and surely, I'm pretty confident that it'll lead you to begin to uncover some of those potentially idolatrous desires and demands that you have. One of the reasons why idols in our heart are so appealing, though, and why they can be so tempting is that they actually promise us some good end results at the end, right? We begin to think, man, if I, if I just had this, right, or if I just engage in this or, 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 or value or, or, or put all of my treasure in and, and push it towards this, then I'll really be happy or I'll really be comfortable or you know, I'll have better relationships or more security or, or whatever it might be. Right? That's the actual DNA of sin. Again, go back to the fall in Genesis 3. Sin and Satan are still working out the same scheme from the beginning of time. I have something better to offer you than God does. Hey, I've got comfort to offer you, right? I've got a shortcut to growth. I've got, I've got some happiness or security. You know, if you just have this number in your retirement account, if you just get this or if you just do this, sin always overpromises and underdelivers. Sin constantly overpromises and underdelivers. Or another way that you might say it is that sin will take you further than you want to go, and it will keep you longer than you want to stay. Right? It always promises a short-term win, but the long-term payout is not worth it. That's why Moses in Hebrews 11 right, says, choosing rather to suffer afflictions with the people of God than to enjoy the what? The passing pleasures of sin for a season. Right? Sin is fun. That's the reason why we get tempted towards it and engage in it. But it's only for a season. It has an expiration date on it. How do we begin to identify some of these hard idols? And I think, did I list these questions for you? Yeah, and so you don't need to write them down. These are just some really helpful questions, I think, to begin asking yourself to begin to identify in your own heart and in your own life where where maybe are you oriented towards heart idolatry? Uh, here's another great way that you can do it, is give it to your spouse. Give it to your friend and say, hey, could you help me? I know I have blind spots. I know that there are areas of my life that I, I don't see clearly or well. Would you be willing to think through these questions with me? That's, 
That might even be a better way to do this exercise. But if you put all of these building blocks together, right, if we basically try to do a little bit of a brief review, all of these building blocks then, when they're put together, I think help give us a better framework to actually build out a theology of change. That when, when you know where you're going, right, when you know where you're headed, that it helps inform what you do here. And that not only do you know where you're going, but you actually know that you actually have the gas and the thing to get there, i.e. your marriage to Christ, your union with Christ, that it actually enables and animates and motivates your obedience. And not only are you called to do this and get there, but you're actually called to do it to what? Together with other people, with the people in this room. And that the, that the way that you head towards this change is that, that you start where? You actually start here. You actually start here in your heart. You don't start on the outside. You don't start with your situation or your circumstances, but you start with what's already in your heart. I want to read you just a little brief story from one of my, uh, one of my favorite series, Chronicles of Narnia. In the third book, In Voyage of the Don Treader, you guys probably have read this too, but there's a boy in the book, and his name's Eustace, and he's a horrible kid. He's just really bad, total bully, and uh, just not a fun person to be around. Anyway, he gets sucked into this painting with uh, the Pevensey kids, with Edmund and Lucy, and he's on this journey. And the whole time, he's just, he's just difficult to be with. Nobody wants to be around him. And I think that part of Eustace likes that. It's kind of like a way for him to get attention. Anyways, one day they are docking at this island and Eustace goes off kind of on his own. And Lewis describes how when he's out exploring that he comes to a cave. And he goes into this cave and there's just tons and tons of treasure all over this cave. Gold coins and bracelets and I mean it's like the best pirate's treasure of all time. And, and Eustace is just overjoyed. He, he's so excited that he's going to be able to get this and kind of lord it over uh, the Pevensey kids. And Lewis talks about how he goes into the cave and Eustace starts to wrap all of this money and jewelry around himself. He even takes one of these gold bangle bracelets and he puts it up onto his arm. And Lewis says that he goes to bed at sleep with dragonish thoughts of greed in his head. The next morning, uh, Eustace wakes up, and his arm is, like, throbbing. I mean, it's, like, in so much pain. You know when you wake up and you've been sleeping on your arm and it's kind of falling asleep? He kind of thinks that that's what it is. And he looks down, and that that gold bengal bracelet is just, like, stuck to not his arm, but he's got this green, scaly skin all over himself. And uh, he realizes that overnight he's become a dragon. He's become an actual dragon, and that this gold bingo bracelet that he's latched onto his arm is now like cutting into the scales. And so he goes by this nearby pond, and he looks down at his reflection in the pond, and it's like this, he's like this huge, massive dragon. And, and then the story goes on, you know, Eustace tries to find uh, the other Pevensey kids. Everybody's scared of him. They all run away. They're like, hey, you're a dragon, and Eustace is trying to communicate, no, it's me, it's Eustace. And they're like, no, you're a dragon. So they're totally running off, and, and Eustace is all by himself. He's depressed. He's isolated. He's all by himself and, until someone comes along, right, until Aslan comes along. And we're told in the story that Aslan comes to Eustace, and he tells Eustace, he says, hey, do you want to be a dragon? I'm paraphrasing. Do you want to be a dragon anymore? And Eustace is like, no. What I thought was actually going to give me what I wanted, right? If I had all of this money, everybody's going to like me. Everybody's going to want to be my friend. It's actually turned out just the opposite. Nobody wants to be near me. And so Aslan tells him, he says, okay, well, stop being a dragon. Why don't you just start peeling these scales off of yourself? 
And we all know how the story goes. Eustace goes down and he tries to start taking his claws and he starts to try to peel the dragon scales off of his arms. And, and Lewis records for us that every time he would pick off a dragon scale, you know what was underneath it? Another dragon scale. And he's just ripping and ripping until Aslan makes an offer to him. Listen to what Aslan says. Aslan comes to Eustace and, Eustace and he says, listen, I'm going to have to undress you. You can't undress yourself. Eustace says, he peeled the beastly stuff right off of me, just as I thought that I had done it myself the other three or four times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, all of my dragon skin lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there was I as soft and smooth as a peeled switch and smaller than I'd ever been. Then he caught hold of me. I didn't like that much, for I was very tender, and underneath it now I had no skin on, and he threw me into the water. It smarted like anything, but only for a moment, and after that it became perfectly delicious, and as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found out that all of the pain had gone from my arm, and then I saw why, because I'd been turned into a boy again, right? It's a wonderful uh, allegorical way, I think, in so many ways for Lewis to describe what's happening to us when we try and kind of achieve our own salvation or try to change on our own apart from what? Apart from Christ, apart from what Christ has given to us. I love the end of the chapter because Lewis actually gives us an even further insight to Eustace that actually makes sense of where all of us are at today in the process of change. Listen to what Lewis says. He says, it would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth, Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he had began to be a different boy, but you know what? He had relapses. There were still many days when he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice because the cure had begun. Because the cure had begun, right? It's this fascinating way, I think, in many ways, that Lewis is actually locating for us what we're talking about today with progressive sanctification, the process of change. For many of you, right, your life isn't perfect, right? You, you, you mess up. But the good news is that, that the cure has begun, right? And the cure has begun. And, and now that the cure has begun, we actually have to begin to say, okay, then how do we keep this cure going on? How do we actually continue to live out faithfully what God has called us to as Christians? How do we actually prepare ourselves for this final destination? And over our next two sessions, what we're going to do is we're actually going to go to Scripture, and I think that we're actually going to find a roadmap. We're actually going to find a roadmap for what this change looks like, and we'll use a little bit of a metaphor to help us understand that. But in the meantime, we're going to take a 15-minute break and again, here are some discussion questions to kind of help facilitate uh, conversation amongst you. And I don't know if you knew this coming into it, but part of the goal is to get you to talk to each other, right? It would be foolish for me to say, hey, just come and learn, but don't talk to anybody and don't share anything. I don't want you to do that. Uh, there's a reason why you're at round tables to facilitate that. So again, what are some good questions for you? Number one, what are a few things that you're taking away from the session? Number two, you know, why, is, why does this process seem so hard for you? And we talked a little bit about that earlier. Why is change hard for you? And maybe that, that actually gets us at the water's edge of vulnerability for you to say, hey, change is hard for me. I've tried a lot of different things and it, and it hasn't worked or I'm discouraged right now. And number three, what building block of change needs the most attention in your life? 
Go back to the four, community, the heart, marriage to Christ, final destination. Which one for you needs to be built up? Which one needs more attention in your life or more teaching? Maybe some of you would say, I need all four. Like, I don't have anything. I don't have any building blocks. Uh, maybe some of you would say, I need, I need this piece. I need community or I, need, I actually need to focus more on my own heart and less on other people and less on situations. 